0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network and today I'm very happy to say that we have Cy Hirsch on the phone and we'll be talking about his terrific memoir, Reporter. I should say that Sai played an interesting role in my life, though he didn't know it. I read his book, My life 4, while I think I was in detention, Sai, in my high school library in 1978, because I wasn't a very good boy. And uh, it sparked a kind of lifelong interest in history. And I eventually became a historian, believe it or not. And I even wrote a book about Mili. So there you have it, The Power of Good Reporting. So welcome to the show, Sai. I'm glad to be here. Great. And by the way, uh, you're not the first story like that I've heard. I bet not. Yeah, no. I no ch- I ch- yeah. It, the most touching one
1: came from somebody who was uh, at West Point. Oh, really? Uh, first or second year, and uh, when he said, I, I can't be in an army that does this. And he, right. He, yeah. He, yeah. Sure. And they But they, what they did is he gave up his commission, mm. and he served. Uh, he had to serve three years as a medic in uh, Vietnam, or wow. two years as a medic. Wow. Yeah, they punished him for quitting. Yeah. I mean, well, that's okay. He, yeah. did, he did something useful. He did um, do something useful. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yes, and I know your book. Yeah, so anyway,
0: so um, pardon me for saying this, but uh, and this is just so the listeners know what we're doing. You're kind of a famous guy and pretty much everybody, uh, at least in the chattering classes, kind of knows who you are. Um, but I don't think they know much about you before you broke the Mili story in 1969. So in the interview, I think that what we're going to do is concentrate on the Cy Hirsch before 1969, if that's okay. And I'm really interested in how you became a reporter and uh, a really, uh, if you don't mind these words, tenacious, independent-minded one. So I want to begin with the word reporter. You call your book reporter, not journalist or investigative reporter. So why did you call the book Reporter. Well, I think
1: every reporter is an investigative reporter. I mean, unfortunately, they're not. But I think you know, it, you know, it, <laughs> what drives me crazy is is um, we're, we're right now we're in this sort of a very funny period of our journalism where there's no middle ground anymore. You're either for Trump or you're against Trump, and the, the media's gone all in on it. There's no there's no one newspaper one can look to for an objective assessment of what's going on. You either hate Trump or you like Trump, and so it drives the way it works and. But, but my thought, or even before this particular issue, which is ex- exasperated, something that's been going on for a long time, because the newspaper business doesn't have the funds it used to have, there's not enough money, there's not enough advertising to do stories, so sometimes you end up with a reporter thinking it's okay to describe a conflict, and you know, between A and B, and A says this and B says that, and what I always thought you should do is is maybe if you have to write a story about the conflict and then try and figure out who's right and who's wrong. That's our job, to go beyond just the mere facts of so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so so so and so stuff, then try and figure out if there's, a, you know, particularly if there's an issue involving, uh, not personal stuff, but a broader issue involved, suing over water treatment or something like that. You know, are the water levels safe enough? And that's the kind of stuff that you should get into. And it doesn't happen enough. I mean, we still have, even the Flint water situation, I keep on hearing contradictory things about how bad the water is. I know that sounds silly, but it's not. It's it's what our business is is designed to do, take time and do stories. But what you see today is, uh, you know, it's also harder for... When I worked at the New York Times in the heyday in the 70s, Watergate and Vietnam, sort of a free hand in that newspaper, which, which was a very... I was actually working for The New Yorker in 71 and 72 and left it to go to the Times to write about Vietnam from Washington. Uh, because the Times had such a reputation as a straight paper. I mean, way straight laced. And that if I wrote a story critical of the war from Washington, it would be believed. Um, if I if I was critical of Kissinger, it would be believed. And now uh, um, what you have is uh, uh, everybody living and dining off the tweet. Trump is, is high volume. Trump, people want to read about Trump. People hate him. People like him, but they want to read about him and they want to hear about him. So the cable news shows are all Trump all the time, all tweets, all of his Twitters all the time, or tweets, whatever they call them, all the time. And as very little, the kind of reporting you get now is just sort of horrendous for me. I mean, I just watch it with shock.
0: Right. So you, I, think, you think the sort of point is to get to the truth?
1: Well... I, it's point. Certainly, is to write a story for the New York Times and then immediately uh, go on two or three uh, nightly uh, cable shows <laughs> talking about it. Yeah, I would have be been fired if I tried to do yeah, that. Yeah, right. I, know, I know what you mean, yeah, you didn't do that. You didn't merchandise yourself that way. The story was the story, not what you did. And it's all changed, and it's sort of sad to watch. I'm an old fashioned journalist, and um, it's just sad to watch that you know that you, you can write anything you want, and there's no facts anymore. You know. I mean, I've written stories galore raising a lot of doubts about some of the things we take for, for that Bin Laden was killed the way he was, or that the Syrians didn't use nerve gas at the time. Everybody said they did. And there's no longer any debate. The media just, they're not interested in looking into that issue. It's all been resolved. Yeah. Uh, they're bad guys, and that we go on. And, you know, nothing's that simple. But it becomes it, it, it's reductionary. The, you know that the, you know the, and reporters don't seem to be that interested in looking at clip files or looking at the science involved. I'll give you a classic example. Um, uh, everybody talks, oh my God, there was a chlorine gas attack. Or chlorine is not a chemical weapon. It's a gas. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, you smell it and you walk away. Right. It's not a weapon. It's right. Never been a weapon. Chlorine gas is just not a weapon. And chlorine is all over the place in places like Syria particularly in the opposition places because chlorine is very good for cleaning bodies, and one thing in that society in the in the Middle East, you bury right away right and there's a lot of bombing and a lot of blood, and so people get killed it's very messy and chlorine is a very great cleaner. you use chlorine to clean the body prepared for burial so there's chlorine everywhere you can't bomb a house without chlorine being right. exposed to the again anyway it's just so much more complicated and it's also reductionary and um uh I, I can't you know I, I hear your question, the basic question. Where did I you know, why did I why do I think a little differently than other reporters even back in sixty nine and seventy when I was chasing me line? Well, like you, Mr Poe, um I'll take your word for it that you were a reader. I was a reader. I grew up in a um a, uh, immigrant family, my parents basic language they spoke to each other in Yiddish they were from my father Lithuania and my mother from Poland they emigrated here in the early 20s um, very early 20s, 2021 20, and they made a living here, and they had a family they were in Chicago and they all clustered together they know my father I remember watching my father play soccer when I was a little boy in a in park in Chicago. Uh, you know, the, the Lithuanians would pay the Polacks, and there'd be a lot of bloodshed, <laughs> i that. But I remember that. It was a very ethnic world. And um, we weren't religious. We were Jewish, but we weren't religious. And we lived in a, a neighborhood that was close. To, my father ended up, after he had made some money, he lost money, and then the stock market crash was 38. America must have been a wonderful place in the 30s, because a lot of people, a lot of their friends really lived well anyway. We ended up running a laundry and cleaning in the heart of the black ghetto in Chicago I'm on a street called Indiana Avenue, 4507. Regal Cleaners was the name of the place, and I always worked there. Um, I always was, that was part of, when I was 12, 13, I was going to work there on weekends and customers would come with checks and I'd go fill the order and take the money and run, ring it up. And uh, I was going to help sort clothes and package them. I would do that. Um, and so I, I grew up working. And my parents, uh, uh, it never was a question of there wasn't any intellectual leadership. It came from within. Uh, when I was thirteen or so, I uh, I think I wrote about this in the memoir. I wrote about these early days, not just briefly. And and, um, and you're right. There's a um, you know there's a tremendous amount of interest in my early days by a lot of people uh, because nobody knows much about it because I never talk much about it, but. Um, um, uh, I joined the Book of the Month Club <laughs> when I was about 13, yeah. and I, every month I would get the nonfiction. It was a dollar, I think 99 cents or something like that. Send a dollar off, and maybe one every three weeks would be by something, uh, one every three months. Once guys came once a month. And it would sometimes be, um, it would be uh, some of the, um, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover would write about the perils of communism, or John Gunther would. But two out of three weeks, a uh, month, there would be stuff on the uh, uh, the Habsburg monarchy and Chinese civilization. <laughs> right. I'm reading all this stuff because I was always a little, not bored by school, but I was always good at school. And like a lot of American kids, I mean, I lived for sports, too, even though, I, had, you know, my parents didn't understand sports, but I lived for sports. You know, I had a twin brother, and he was also a good athlete. We used to play in, oh, hockey in winter. Chicago, was a, we had winters then. We live in a big apartment complex, so you know, sort of not cold water flats, but not much better than eighty dollars a month, I think. And I had sisters in, in one bathroom. And uh in the center of the courtyard was enough space for in winter by by, by Thanksgiving. We had ice we would Pour uh, water on it. We had a, we played hockey. Sure, sure. Yeah. And yeah. in the spring, we played baseball. And in the summer, we played, you know, we played basketball. And that's what you just did as kids, I That's the way I grew up.
0: Life. That's exactly the way I grew well, up. Well,
1: normal life. Yep. And so when, my, when I'm 15, my father gets cancer. And I'm the least afraid of him. My father's, it was, I always think of how did my father communicate? I, I, there was a wonderful record, Mel Brooks. He had called a 2,000 year old man. Yes. And at one point he's asked the question, well, how did you, 2,000 years ago, how did you travel? Uh, how, what was the mode of transportation? And Mel Brooks said, Carl Reiner was the questioner, Mel Brooks, you know, the wonderful madcap movie maker. Mel Brooks' answer was fear. You see a lion and run. <laughs> <laughs> and so I grew up less afraid of my father. He had a quick, you know, he, he never said much to us. And he had he used to shave with a strop. but another straw. I remember watching him sharpen it, and he used to spank us with that strop.
2: Yeah,
1: pulled down our pants and bang us, and boy, that really hurt. And so, I, but I was least afraid, and so I could take care of him when he got sick. It went to his brain. I could take him to get a haircut. He was a dying man, and so school disappeared for me. I began working more and more in in, in, the, in the store. You know, I, I began make deliveries before I got a driver's license because in those days um deliveries on Friday night and Saturday night were a third of the income and you didn't you didn't you didn't report that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was the way it worked in lower middle class American business. So my father didn't bank, he had a, a safety deposit box. Uh-huh. He didn't have was like checking your account wow. and cash and stash out. Anyway, he wasn't a thief, he just that was that was the way it was. And actually he was pretty straight about it, a lot of stuff. And so he's dying and I'm supposed to get out of high school and <laughs> and there were my third year I was always a straight a student but my fourth year I, everything fell apart, but I took a test and there were three guys, two me me and two other guys who uh, uh, ended up with the highest score. I don't think it was a straight IQ test It was something and the other two one one went to Harvard and the other one I went to Yale uh, yeah. <laughs> one went to scholarship and became a day he wrote me later when he got the book to say he remembered very vividly all of us. back then I had Ethan now retired professor of medicine at Harvard anyway. The bottom line is that um, I never thought about college. So I barely scraped out of high school, you know, getting C's and D's, but I graduated. And that summer, I never thought about it. And in the fall, I ran my father's business, and my mother was there. My brother, I had a brother who um, uh, wasn't as, I was quicker. And he, I was too afraid of my father to even work in the store. And he ended, he ended up being a physicist, and he he fine. he he went he went to college out of the city, and we paid for that, but that's about took most of our money. And so I ended up living at home with my mother, and and going starting to go to a free junior college. What happened in Chicago after World War II? We're talking about 1952, 53, 54. After World War II, vets came back, and they wanted an education. But they had no money. So the University of Illinois set up a two-year community college called uh, Navy Pier. On a, it was an old pier the Navy had built in, uh, right at the beginning of the war, the train um, 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 uh, navigators, you know, ship guys who could plot ship courses. And so it was a big navigation school. They turned out thousands of navigators for the Navy. It was a big deal. And so the, after the war, a couple years after the war, the University of Illinois, I uh, made a two-year community college there. They put money in refurbishing the old, it was just a wharf. And um, if you did well enough, you could go and to, to spend the, get the next two years to go downstate and get a full degree. But it was basically just a junior college. And it was free. And the only thing I had to do was pay for a locker. For, we, we had to run a track, run a track. That was exercise. Run a, try to get a, I remember, get a quarter mile under a minute Fifty-five. That's hard. I say it's hard. Even though it's in shape, it's hard. Hated it. And so I went. Uh, what I would do is I would go and open up my father's store. This is when kids were going, you know, Harvard, and Yale, and University of Illinois, and, and other schools. Uh, I went to a good high school by uh, right near the University of Chicago, uh, Hyde Park High School, and a lot of very good, very good public school. I don't know what it's like now, but anyway. And I would go and open the store at seven and, and people would come to work and at a, uh, about 8.30 I would drive downtown. You could park right downtown in the early fifties and you could park right next to the, uh, the big parking lot for students and go to school. And this was early September. And about the third week I took a course in English and the third, I, got, I don't, I remember the assignment. I got an assignment to compare a British novel, and American novel, modern novel from some young, you know, overachieving new professor, his first job as I learned, and I turned in a paper, and maybe the third week of school, I'm doing what kids do, you know, walking down Dank halls, not connecting with anybody, just figuring out, lost in space. <laughs> and, uh, at the end of class the professor called out and he said, Is Seymour Hirsch here? And I said, Oh crap, what have I done? <laughs> and, and I walk up to the, I walk up to the front, the young professor, and he said, Are you Hirsch? And I said, Yes, and he said, I'll tell you. He said, What are you doing here? And I knew what he meant. I said, Well, I followed that a lot of you because he really liked my paper. So this guy says to me, uh, where do you live and what's going on? I told him a little bit where I live, and he said, he'd just gotten his doctorate at Chicago. His name was Cogan. Um,
0: yeah, this is Cogan. Bernard Cogan. I think he Bernard deserves Cogan. to be mentioned, yeah.
1: Yes, I, I write about him because he and I stayed in touch forever, yeah. but there's a connection that I'll, I'll just tell you, a hooker And on it. That's just amazing how the mind works. And I met him at the University of Chicago a couple of days later, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning, I cut school, and I took an admissions test. At Chicago. When Chicago starts late, that was a recorded system that it, it just barely started. But maybe late September, they were just getting organized. And they they would go quarter, quarter. It would be late September to December, they were three quarters. And so the school hadn't really started. And I was accepted right away, given money. And I placed out of a couple of history courses because I knew modern history <laughs> because of those crazy books. But I didn't do that. I didn't want to be one of those kids who did the University of Chicago in three weeks. You know, they had these, these kids. And so I started there, and he saved my life in a way, and I completely forgot about this until, this is literally, 1983, I'm, I'm married, I've got two kids, my wife's a doc, um, oh, we live in Washington in a house in Cleveland Park, and, you know, I've already made, I've been at the Times, and I've had my success, I'm not rich but anything, else, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm, you know, I own a house, have a car, a dog, a mortgage, like everybody, and anyway, in comes mail. I'd done a book on Kissinger that it provoked a lot of mail. And, and it would, mail would be rooted from, some people would write the New York Times, some people would write the New Yorker where I also worked then a little bit. And it would be forwarded to my home. And one day, my wife's opening the mail, and we'd save it. And she's going through it on the weekend. And she opens up a letter from a guy named Kogan. And it begins with, she said, oh my God, you better read this. And she didn't know the story. It begins with, you probably don't remember me. My name is Marshall. I would talk so-and-so. And in my 20 years of teaching or 30 or 40, I've only interviewed twice with the students and, and asked them to leave where, he, where I was teaching and go someplace else, and you were one, and the other one became a neurosurgeon or something. Mm. I'm so proud of you. And I remembered, I had not thought about it, it was 25 years, I, I started to cry. I remembered he saved my life. Yeah. And ever since then, I know I said this in the memoir, ever since then, from 83 on, Anybody, high school teacher, grammar school teacher, mostly high school, AP English guys, or AP history, AP Vietnam guys, you know, studying. Anybody wanted me to come speak. You know, not, the, not for fee. I mean, in the area, I go to yeah. tomorrow. I, w- I would go. Yeah. I, never not, I never said no. Yeah. I mean, I give speeches for money a lot in universities and all sure. that stuff, but this is different. Everybody, any local professor at the University of Washington or, or Bethesda, Maryland or Virginia, you know, who wanted me to come talk, I would go even with uh, an hour a ride. Just go
0: and do the class because, my God. Um, so, Well, I should say, just to interrupt for a second, you're very gracious in the memoir. You mentioned a lot of people like Bernard Kogan who've helped you along the way. And actually, I had a Bernard Kogan in my own life who I met when I was 18. And I'm still in touch with the guy. His name's well, Dan Kaiser. So alive. I'm really lucky. Yeah. yeah, I'm totally, really lucky. And I often tell my students, like, the most important thing that ever happened to me was, that guy picked me out. Because you really did change the course of my life. And as I say, in the memoir, you mention a lot of people like this very graciously. You know, it's it's, a, it's an impressive thing. Well, it's not thing. graciously. It's just, you know, what's the sense
1: of, of, of you know, what's the sense of, you know, there, there's always, you can always be ungracious. You can, uh, But uh, the truth is that Colgan helped me uh, later in life. There was, when I finally got a job, there was a guy at... Uh, the AP. I was working in South Dakota for UPI, and my competition, I guy named Dan Perks, the AP Bureau Chief, in pure South Dakota, a little small, dinky place. And UPI, we were sort of sure. Always AP had teletypes. We used to type our own stories on the teletype, you know, even on news broadcasts. <laughs> broadcast. They had any, always AP was superior. Dan helped me get a job at AP in Chicago. He wrote a letter. I mean, I always think that has something to do with it, but I just don't know. And the, the editor at the, at the, when I worked for the, uh, what happened is, what happened is I, I got through college. Um, I, uh, I, I, I was, you know, I was obviously a good. I always knew I could write, and everybody, and my friends, uh, they all thought I'd write the great American novel uh, because I was always pretty critical of people. <laughs> 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 and and um, uh, in, in Chicago, in the University of Chicago, in the fifties, the, the real devastating word would be if you accuse somebody of not being protected. <laughs> mm. in, in, Chicago was a strange place. The the college is small, fifteen hundred. The graduate school is six thousand. And um, I, I ended up in a fraternity where I go and drink too much sometimes, and, and and play bridge. And the way you played bridge in in the fifties in Chicago was every every, every contract was uh was uh, everything was did at, at you know a slam, <laughs> or and and uh, uh, re- and, and challenged. And, I mean, everything was, everything was an intellectual game. It was a very heady place. And I got out of there and I, I wanted to get a job, believe it or not. I, I, I learned about something called Xerox. I thought it was really going to be a big field, but I couldn't get hired by Xerox. I, I had no, I was an English major and, you know, and I spent the summer working in a bar or selling whiskey and, and in the fall, uh, three weeks before we were the Chicago fall started in, uh, again, in, uh, early October, or late September, um, I had played baseball, even though it was almost impossible to think about it. I managed to play varsity baseball for a couple of years. I sometimes couldn't travel with the team because I had to run the store. But on weekends, my brother would come down. He was at the University of Illinois. He would come down and and run the store on Saturday so I could go play. I remember playing against the University of, of Wisconsin, and we played a doubleheader. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though we were a small college, um, uh, there were no NCAA rules until sixty uh, Undergrads, in other words, for two my first two years of being in college, graduate school students could play. So we had some tremendous athletes <laughs> in the medical school, <laughs> yeah, right. and so we could play. We yeah. could, we you know, we had a picture cool. that you know we could play Wisconsin and and Harvey Keene I remember who was later 20 years as a professional shortstop for the um, Milwaukee Brewers was at was Wisconsin, uh, their shortstop, I've never seen a better ball player. I remember we played a doubleheader against them, and I was shocked because between the two games, I, he went with some friends, and they had a beer and smoked a cigarette, I remember he we so shocked. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the upshot is um, I... I, I decided to go to law school, and I, and one of my, my best colleagues, who was, later became dean or acting dean of the U.S. Chicago Law School, His father was a professor, and I went to see him on the last day of September, and I said, okay, I want to go to law school, and I got in in two days. Yeah. You know, that could happen then, but I hated it, and I was a terrible student. I, I didn't like it. It was all memory. And so I got out of that, and I didn't know what I was doing, and one day in a bar, I bumped into a guy who worked at a place called City News Bureau, where, you know, I didn't know anything about reporting, You know, I I, like everybody else. I worried about Ike and the bomb and all that stuff. But I didn't know anything about. I read the papers a little bit. I used the New York Times. I did. I read every day for the puzzle. You know, we'd all try to do the puzzle within 30 minutes. You know, it got harder during the week. I have a friend that
0: still does that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what I read the Times for. I grabbed a puzzle and I would look at the paper. You know, I didn't like Ike and all that stuff, but I wasn't into it. You know, Um, and so. I'm just to tell you, I'm just trying to create some idea of how I got to where I was because everything I did, I did on my own. And I, I ran into a guy in a bar that um, I tried to. He was flirting with a girlfriend I had gone well with, and so we were joking about it. And he was a, he just joined Time Magazine, and he he um, was going to join. I don't remember which. And he was at City News. It's a news agency in Chicago that had been set up in 1920s in the, the, the era of Dillinger and crime and all that stuff. And there was so much crime and so much court stuff that the four major papers and the wire services and the radio stations got together and funded a news agency that would cover the courts and the police stations. And it was half the people who were hired there came from the deal School, of journalists, the other half, all you had to need was a B.A. And so what I remember vividly is Going down and applying, fill out a form and disappeared. Months later, I moved. Meanwhile, the phone number I gave—no cell phones then—I gave the phone number of the apartment, and I moved. And one night, about oh two five months later, nobody called me back. I you know, I forgot about it. I was still selling booze in a Walgreens, still figuring <laughs> what I'm going to do. I was trying to save money. I was maybe get a nice travel. image. So I, had no, so I had no money. Dollar fifteen hour. Yeah. And um I lived in it, but it was—you can imagine after. My deal with my brother was, I would take care of my mother for four years, and then he would go to Illinois, you know, Illinois, downstate, and he got a job in electric, and he got a a a degree in electrical engineering. He was always interested in wave theory, and he got a doctorate in physics in California. He goes to California and gets a job, and he takes my mother. That's the deal. He got married, and they set up an apartment for her. So suddenly, I'm free of taking care of my mother. My brother's doing it. He honored our commitment. I did it for four years. And I'm living in a $12 a week room in a basin and in some boarding room. The bathroom's down the hall with big water bugs. And I'm the, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. Yeah. I'm free. Right. And I go to law school and I hated that, but you know, I, I had a girl. It didn't matter. I, I had a life. I felt like I was becoming, I always read, you know, but I felt like I, I was big, I could get, anyway, it was all self-starting. And so I applied for the job and one night I, I this was out of a bad movie. I went to play poker at my old apartment. I'd moved. It's the time I uh, signed up at City News. I went to play poker with a bunch of guys who knew what they were doing. Table stakes, pot limit. You know, you bring $100, you lose in 10 minutes. Anyway, I was quickly wiped out. You know, I'm the worst poker player in the world. I learned that in the Army, too. I went in the Army later. And um, so it was about 3 o'clock by the time I got tapped out. So I went to sleep on a couch in, in the old apartment where I lived. There was a couch in the back room, and then the phone rang in the morning. Nobody answered it, and I finally picked it up on the fifth ring, and somebody said, uh, This is Ryberg of City News, the editor. He said, Are you Hirsch? Looking for Hirsch. I said, I'm Hirsch. He said, Well, your name's come up. Come on down. Let's talk about going to work. Wow. And that's how I got the job. Yeah. Why, I mean, what was I doing there that day? You know, what karma? I go down there and, yeah, man, that's and cool. they hire me, 35 bucks a month, a week rather, and I become a copy boy of City News and I'm, I fell in love. It all oh, like could have just, been different. Yep. Everything could be different, but yep. it was just amazing. I fell in love and I had a tough editor who rode my,
0: my ass hard. Name Bob can, Billy. I, can, I, can I interrupt to ask a question? Because I yeah. just found this fascinating. Uh, you were a copy boy. You bet. What is a copy boy? <laughs> what do they do? Do they, they still exist? Uh, they don't exist anymore
1: because it's also computerized. At that time, the Chicago, the, the way it worked is we had pneumatic tubes to every station. We had a pneumatic tube, a tube that went by a power pressure right. tube that went across the city to all the newspapers and all the radio stations and everybody else who subscribed. We they, we had subscribers. You know, they would pay a certain amount for our service, and we covered every crime. And so we covered every crime, small, little, otherwise, and the editors would look at what we report and decide whether they want to send a reporter to cover it. Yeah. Okay. And same with fires. And so for months I was begging to get out. I I didn't. And the way we did it, every uh, you, you wrote us, you 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 called the reporters, of call in the story. You had rewrite guys who type it up on on a, on a, a, a form that I could then attach to a. A, uh, uh, a machine that cranked out uh, copies. It was a, like a mimeograph machine. There only it was go. a little different. That dark blue ink. I remember. I was suffused with blue ink every night. And I would put this. I would put the story on a little. Attach it to a little press and crank out a hundred copies that we would then send. Put in the matic tubes and send to every station. And that's the job. Yeah, got yeah, it. A lot of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of work. And the other thing in the morning, I worked the night shift. The I had the last thing I had to do between six thirty and seven. With a special, uh, uh, special uh, uh, soap, cleaned the day. City editor's desk in such a way he was fanatic about dirt. He would come in, and, and his name was Larry Millay. He would come in and sit down exactly at seven, and then start running his hands over the desk. And as I wrote in my, in uh, that or, I mean it was, I, I had fun writing this up. I could have won three pull of surprises the night before, <laughs> and if I left <laughs> a smear on his yeah, desk, I'd be uh, fired. Yeah. I I'd remember be fired that, service, yeah. One piece of That's dirt funny, in yeah. desk. <laughs> So anyway, so I did that, and there was a guy named Bob Billings who had been a football player, an Illinois big tough guy, and he was always, he was really brilliant, but he tried to hide it. He was this, uh, a, a, a Joyce scholar. He talked Joyce, later in life he talked mm. Joyce. But you know, I didn't, i knew there was something there, but he was edgy about me. I was smart, obviously. And I, you know, I was a, I was a, a, a uh, I had played ball, and you know, I was—I wasn't big. I mean, I'm five eleven. I'm bigger than I am now. You lose almost six feet. And I was, you know, a nice appearing guy, and I had a lot of lip. And and every day I would bring a book, and he used to ride my ass. You know, I, and one of the things you had to do is at some point go out and get coffees and. I I'd get coffees and sandwiches, and he'd come back and he said, "You're the dumbest fucking Jew I've ever seen. You can't get a you can't get a coffee order straight. I want a cream, and you got me milk." And so, but then he'd come back later. He said, "What are you reading?" He'd say, and I said, "So and so." He said, "What do you want to read that junk for?" He said, "You know, of course, of course, he was, I was reading novels. I was reading, you know, Sal Bello, and, and uh, I was reading all the novels. The, you know, William Styron was beginning to write then. I was in love with these guys and copying all the words, the vocabulary, and." And, uh, you know, Augie Marsh had been published with a novel by Saul Bellow about a, a Chicago boy that wasn't making it. And that was me. Yeah. You know, I, I could relate to it. And so uh, it turns out I'm a good, I am a good—I was a good golfer, too. I picked up golf tomorrow. And he liked golf. And we started playing golf. And he eventually got me on the street. And so I became a street reporter in Chicago, you know, at the age of 22, 23. I was so happy. I'm covering downtown police. Midnight to eight shift, and cops are okay. You know, I'm not even a great fan of cops. Chicago cops are pretty. You know, you didn't mess around with the cops. But they, midnight, about two or three in the morning, if they scored some good Mary Jane, you know, one of the cops, the young cops would come back, and only two or three of us reported, and we'd all share the joint, which you called marijuana back then, Mary Jane. We'd smoke a joint, and sometimes we'd look at the dirty films, they'd complicate you know, eight, eight millimeter porn. Mm-hmm. And the cops would share it with us, but also, you know one night I learned a lot being a police reporter, one night I'm in covering downtown police, I'm always on a, I'm listening to radio, and there are two cops down about two miles away, and I an old Studebaker. I get in my old car and I get it's winter it's cold in hell. I get out there and I get to the scene and there are two federal postal inspectors that have been ambushed and they're, they're, the car they've been shot to death and the car hit a pole on Roosevelt Road, about um mile south of uh, downtown Chicago. And I'm there, I'm the only reporter there, which is good, because then my story is going to be on the desk of every newspaper, and they're going to have to sign somebody, or if if they want to make the first edition, you know, the last morning edition, they have to use the city news story, which happens occasionally. We like that. Uh, They tended not to want to use our stories, but, you know, they would. they buy city news anyway. um, And so I remember that looking at the two guys' bullets all over, blood all over, and I go up to the sergeant and charge. (laughs) I have my press pass from City News, I guess they threw the corridor so you the know they had rings of uh cops blocking people. But I get through and I go up to the sergeant in charge, who of course is in a fucking rage because a uh, fellow cop is down and I say, Um, uh Sarge, City News, are they dead? And he looked at me and he grabbed me and I remember I had a coat on and he threw me as hard as you could throw anybody, the big guy, big Irish cop, against the car, parked car and said, Not to little pronounced you know, he called me any one of six different swear words. And so I had a big dilemma. Do I call in they're dead or do I wait for the coroner? So I waited 15 minutes for the coroner and he said they're dead and I called it in. So I learned something. I learned a lot. Not so bad the wait. Yeah. Uh, not, a couple of weeks later, I'm on the south side covering night shift the Hyde Park District where I used to live. And I'm enjoying that. And what you do with the cops in Chicago, Irish, the Irish controlled the cops. And a lot of cops were cops because they had to be third generation. And some of them were just amazingly brilliant. You know, talk about New York Times. There were guys there who did the London Times across the group. And so you go you go and you make nice of so the, the, the sergeant running this desk. You buy him a coffee and he'd wait around. And he'd call you and say, we got something interesting going on and so-and-so. And he'd tip you off about a fire. So I dashed out to a fire in the ghetto close to my where my father's, uh, we, when when I graduated from college, we sold our store store that we hung on to, but only because we were frightened peasants. We could have sold it for a reasonable, it made a living, but we hung on to it and, you know, business got slower and slower, but we ended up giving it to the employees and they kept it going. Yeah. But, you know, we could have sold it, but we didn't know what else to do. We just hung on to what you have. Real ghetto people, you know what I mean? We're, my mother mm-hmm. could have gotten a job. I could have worked part-time. We didn't have to keep me working at this store, you know, which is, it was all crazy, but that's the way it was. You didn't change it. And you can understand why people, you know, uh didn't change before the Holocaust, because that's the way they'd done it. <laughs> right. yeah. Anyway, I learned something then. But when I get out to some place where there's, you know, some guy has gone nuts in the black community, shot his wife and a bunch of kids. When I get there, the, the fire department, they put the fire, started a fire, burned to death. They all burned, too. And uh, they were all wrapped up in Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and three or four little bears. And I remember being just horrified. What a story. And I, you know, the cops didn't know much about it, but a neighbor told me who they were. There'd been some domestic stuff. And and I got enough so I could call in a bulletin. I remember a guy named Casey Buckwell, who later became the environmental editor of the Chicago Tribune, a wonderful, old, wonderful, great old reporter, became a wonderful reporter in Chicago. Uh, that's what we had at City News. Michael Mike Roykel, the great columnist, worked there. I used to play golf with him and um, uh, drank himself to death. So. But anyway... Um, and so I, I would call in the story, and I'm just horrified, you know, there's six people dead, you know, and, and I'm dictating this story to Casey, I think it was Casey. He used, used to call up and say, get me rewrite. And uh, uh, I, I you just dictate And the Night City editor, a guy named Dornfeld, who I hated because he lived in the country, and he used to wear boots to work, and he would put them all night on Larry Millay's death. <laughs> yeah,
2: right. Son of a bitch, I had yeah. to clean his boots up, you know, his
1: counters and whatever it was. Anyway... He gets on the phone with me. They had a calm system, and he said, Ah, my good, dear, energetic Mr. Hirsch, he said. I said, Yes, sir, Mr. Dornfield. He said that the victims, the uh, last poor and of, of the, uh, the words are really like this, give or take a phrase, were the last poor and of the victims of, um, uh, of, uh, uh of, uh, of, uh, of the Negro, or oh, were they of, of the Negro community, of the Negro persuasion, of Negro persuasion. I said, Yes, sir. He said, "Cheap it out." And city news—that meant you saw what you fired is six people died in a fire in Southwest Chicago today. Mm-hmm. And I got a lesson in racism. I thought I knew something about racing, working, you know, growing up, working in a black community, and knowing the, you know, the troubles there. I got a lesson that was really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. That was this was all on four, five, six months working, and I had to go in the army. Um, uh, I was going to be drafted, and I wanted to beat the draft, so I got into a, about a six-month reserve. I had to go take that slot. So I know I had to leave in a couple of months, but right before I left, I saw something, the third thing, it was a great thing to learn about the persistence of racism. The third thing I saw that was just amazing as a kid reporter. And these all are the kind of things that sort of toughen you up because you, you see, you see it from the inside. I was there. I mean, it happened. And, uh, one night, the, the two cops called in, they, they arrested a, a perp. And he tried to flee and they had to they chased him and they ended up at a shoot up, he's dead and they were they were coming in. And the ambulance had taken him away and they were gonna come in a file. And uh, it was on the radio so I didn't wait for them to cut To come in, I went down to the garage where they. I wanted to interview one of the cops before he got before he debriefed. I wasn't suspicious. I just wanted to. That was me. You know, four in the morning. I just went down there to you know, and he gets in, and I'm walking towards the car. It's dark in the garage. The the main police headquarters was about a five story building. The 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 basement was a garage for the police cars, and uh, I I, he doesn't see me. And these two Irish cops, and they were Irish. You know, the Chicago cops are largely Irish, and and um, they get out, one says, what, another buddy in another well, squad car, obviously, heard the call, and he said, Hey, Mick, so the, the son of a bitch um, uh, uh, tried to run on you. And he said, No, nah, no. Nah. He said, I told the nigger to beat it, and then he plugged him. Mm-hmm. I heard it, All right? Yep. I'm frozen. I go immediately leave. I go back, and I call the desk guy. I said, Oh, my God. Cops just shot a black guy. And it's the, the desk guy, it doesn't matter who he is, so what? I said, what do you mean? I said I just heard a cop talk about it. He said if your word against his, he said let it go, don't touch it. Mm-hmm. I said what are you talking about? He said it it you know you want to stay in this job, you want to stay in downtown police, you make a make a fuss about this, you're gonna have to leave the station and maybe even leave the goddamn city news. Mm-hmm. And I said come on. So I I hung up and I waited a couple of days and looked at the coroner's report, the bullets were in the back. I went downtown to look at the coroner. I, I called that in. And so I was leaving in a couple of weeks, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I love this profession, but it is not perfect. Mm-hmm. There's self, Self-censorship really exists big time. And not only that, me too. I went along with it. There was nothing heroic about me, so I knew right. that going in. And you have to understand something else, which is that in, in, in Chicago, um, uh, 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 the cops just, there was a deal with the mob. You could do anything you want in Chicago as a cop, police reporter. If you said city news, you could park your car on the sidewalk downtown. There was a, a, a street called Rush Street where the, the mob, the the uh the, the syndicate controlled Rush Street. There all the bars and, and honky-tonks. Um, uh, uh, Lenny Roos used to play there, you know, in Mr. Kelly's. And, and if, if some guy some mob guy is uh, found in the gutter in a street at four in the morning with fifty bullet holes in his back, and it's reported it as a traffic accident. You did not screw around with it. Yeah, I knew that. I I also knew that my my period there in Chicago was exciting because I was in a tyranny too. I understood tyranny. It was a police tyranny in a way. The cops got cleaned up later. Uh, old man uh, Orlando Wilson came in a couple of years later. I remember writing about it when I went back to Chicago for the AP. What I did know was the tyranny. I really had a great experience as a police reporter. I understood something about how big cities work. I understood about racism. I understood about waiting an hour. I understood that it's not always a heroic business. Mm-hmm. And these are all very important things to learn. And so they helped me. But also I understood that there was nothing more, you know, being 16, running your father's business, and it's Christmas, and it's knowing. You know, 7 o'clock at night, and you've got $700 in your pocket, and, you know, God knows what's out there in the street. You know, it's been a busy day, Christmas Day. You know, you, everybody wants their cleaning. You do some business then. That's when we made our money in the holidays, mostly. And, you know, I'm closing up in there's gates, and, you know, anybody can come and whack me. I knew that, too. Yeah. Or, you know, same. So I'd gone through all that. And, you know, not that it was heroic, but I had survived all that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I, I got to tell you, um, some three-star general will come up to me and say, you know, why'd you write that story about Mila?" You know, what the hell? And I, I would say, you know, I said it to one guy who went after me, and I said, sir, I'm every, I know, I know you got those stars, but I'm every bit of American as you are. Yeah. And so I always understood that. So I wasn't cowed by that. Mm-hmm. I'd gone through all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's interesting, you're the first person, Mr. Poe, to talk to me about the early days. But that's all formative. I was pretty much on my own. I wasn't wild. I mean, I always took care of my mother, you know, And but I had time to play baseball and have a girlfriend and we'd get drunk on Friday night and she would watch TV. You
0: know, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, she was from the old country and she you know, she didn't know better. And when she went to California, it's interesting, she ended up getting a job working as in a cleaning store, taking care of a, of a store, and she made a living. Yeah, for herself and got an apartment with a roommate. It was better for her too, yeah. instead of hanging on to what we had. Yeah, right. But the instinct was, when my father died, to hang on. And they knew that was wrong too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there you are. Well, I,
0: I, all of those- I guess what I was going to say is, is that you know your tenaciousness and actually also your inventiveness was even apparent at this moment, because you're always doing things on the side. And you might talk a little bit about that. It wasn't just. What do you mean you, by that? Well, the thing about but it was, I'm, you weren't just doing what you were told. You were also investigating other things. And this happens after you go into the army. And then when you start, you know, for example, you started a newspaper, Evergreen Oakland Dispatch. Uh, you're well, an ambitious guy. I got, yeah, I mean, at I, this I kind of the, I, get I to get went to, yeah. in the army and I spent my six months.
1: I learned to shoot a gun. I learned to, uh, I could take a part of a machine gun. I guess blindfolded and all that stuff. And I learned a lot in the army. Um, uh, uh, I was in a basic training unit, and um, uh, in, Oth- in the Ozarks, it was very hot. And the thing you waited for the most is after five weeks, you could have a Friday night off, and you could do two things: you could get to a motel and and take a shower by yourself and go to the bathroom <laughs> by yourself. Yeah, right. You could also buy uh, outside the gates. All the local farmers were selling, you know, their local hooch, yeah, corn whiskey, you know. And so you could get, you could get, you know stoned, blind drunk on cheap whiskey that Great. you're buying for the farmers, Right. And feel like a human being again a little bit. Anyway, um, 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 but I actually uh, uh, the irony is that uh, basic training... <laughs> I'll tell you what the Army is, the conundrum of the Army. I was at a big base, Fort Leonard Wood. They had a baseball team, a division. It was a division team in those days. It was pre-Vietnam. The Korean War was over, and the big thing was... Uh, Division one would play division. The first division would play the second division. Yeah. And the general in charge was always wondering. And they had a baseball team, and they had tryouts for baseball. And I made the team in basic training, which made no sense huh. because I was going to be shipped out after basic training to another place. You know what I mean? I, was, yep. I was, it was. It was two months, ten weeks or so of basic training. And so, in the fifth week, I made the team. And so, I would go practice with the team every day in the afternoon. And my, my other guys didn't like me very much because I'd go back on the chow truck instead of marching back 20 miles, you know, 10 miles. And by the time they came back, I was, you know, dead asleep, exhausted from picking up ground balls, as I say, mm-hmm. or whatever. And so, and then after 10, another five weeks, I was shipped out to another base. So I never got to play. So why would the army let somebody in basic training make the team when there was no way he was
0: going? to – just—I
1: began to figure out the army. Well,
0: it's <laughs> so funny we, you mention this because my father was in the army, and he would be about your age if he were alive. And uh, he never really spoke very well of the army. I mean, and even as someone who made it—you uh, know—he was a captain when he retired. But he was for him, the army was a situation normal all fucked up. Uh, that was the, his. It's changed very much well, today. People okay. don't think of the army that way anymore. No, but he it's did a professional. It's a yep. professional army now. Then it was volunteers,
1: and it was just... You just did it. I did it. It was a good learning experience. You know, I had I had been such a coisted life. You know, I, I was now living with a bunch of guys. You know, there were guys there from the deep south. Uh, there were some Cajuns from Louisiana who wouldn't take showers. We'd have to give them but <laughs> a full T.I. showers. we have to pull, pull them out of there. they come in from the field. We'd come in, you know, it was August, and you're in basic training. You'd come in, and you just go into the shower. It's Strip in the shower and wash with soap as you took off each piece of clothing—you know, your shirt, your pants, your socks, your underwear—and wash them there and just try and get clean. And then hang them out. There was a hangers outside; they dry in an hour, so hot and warm. And so, and these guys would shower. so we'd have to, well, every few days, have to grab them and give them, force them to have showers. And they'd all be talking about coming back later in life with their big brother and knife us to death. They were going to kill us all. You know, guys—they spoke Cajun. I saw all sorts of different people. And I learned to watch my mouth. You know, I'm a bit of a smart ass, but I could always do fifty, you know, fifty push ups or something. You're I was always to yeah. And so anyway I got through that and, and then I went came back and I looked for a job. I'd been working at City News and uh, City News I did a terrible thing at City News. I, I insulted when I left I insulted the sports editor and and he said, when I came back, everybody who went in the army got a job back at City News. He he would quit if I came back. Uh, well, there's, in the City News, is if you're on a beat, and if I let's say I'm covering Central Police and I miss something, it's in the papers and I hadn't reported it. I I get a demerit. There was a scoop sheet. And on Friday nights, the sports editor used to drag me to take basketball scores. I spent two hours taking 800 basketball scores from downstate and everywhere. I hated it. And he, because I hated it the most and was most vocal about it, he made me do it. And so the last day I was there, I went and bought all the British papers, and I took out about fifty clips of um, football, soccer, football, yeah. and uh, look, not and um, uh, what, what are the other uh, uh, Australian football yep. and uh, and the other game where they where they where they bowl the ball, with the cricket. Mm-hmm. And I bought, I took twenty stories and I clipped them up and I scooped them on twenty stories from Europe. <laughs> So when he came in that morning, it was a scoop sheet all full of him. Yeah. And he was so mad at me, I couldn't get back. So I finally got a job at a, at a local newspaper in, in the South Side of Chicago. And so, um, and um, and so, I finally uh, did that. And uh, and it turned out the paper was a shill. It was owned by a bigger newspaper in the area who wanted to make sure no competition came. And it was a terrible newspaper. But I was the only reporter and editor. So I would, I could report city halls at a place called Evergreen Park, Oaklawn, suburb of Chicago. Uh, Kaczynski, the mad bomber out of Evergreen Park. Yeah. I can understand why. <laughs> but anyway, the, the no, it's okay. But the point is that I learned how to do offset, write stories, edit them. And then Billings, my, the, the fellow from City News, where I used to play golf with, I had some money, and he said, why don't we start a real newspaper here? I've got money. And I quit that place, and I did. And I started a paper with Billings, and it was a great paper. We started a paper. Mike Royko used to write for it. Other guys at City News would come and write for it. We really covered the city. We're critical. We had about 18,000 subscribers. You know, just to live, we drop off papers to kids. You know, we had cars uh, in two two suburbs. Yeah. But we gave them news, and within about a month or two, we began to get national advertising for cars and other things. And so by this started in the spring, and by the summer, we were you know we were had one ads that it was going, and we were it was a good paper, but. My God, I didn't want to be the publisher of a paper. I was selling ads.
0: Right. Well, and I then, did. You know, I wanted to comment about that because that is part. It's part of the most entertaining. Uh, I think an entertaining part of the memoir is is the is the passages where you describe selling ads, because it's really well, very. I, you know, look, you got to make the business run. I mean, those people uh, they bring in uh, the money. <laughs> you know, we we would print about eighteen thousand
1: copies, and we had a truck that would go print. And if I didn't give him it was about six hundred bucks cash. If yeah. I didn't have six hundred bucks every Wednesday night to pick up those copies, the kid who picked up the copies and drop them off. And sometimes, if he was sick, I would do it. You know, we we had a truck we rented right and drop off the papers. And so if, um, we had a guy named Baker who gave us a promise of a full page ad every day. And if he wanted to, I probably would have put it on page one if he paid enough.
0: <laughs> well, you know, some, some publications do that now. So it's well, not, you were ahead of your time.
1: <laughs> well, you, 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 I just understood being a publisher. I was, right. you know, and yeah. we, we had, I had four people work for us. One was one, one, one old friend from Chicago that helped sell ads and, you know, and so and we had, a, we, we had other people writing stories, you know, Mike Royko came and wrote some stories about, you know, about Evergreen Park and suburbs, and so we it was, you know, in the book is a photograph of me and Billings and uh, a guy named Paul Zembrockis another guy from City News would come and help us, our first edition and, you know, and, and that was the, the, the headline in the first edition uh, our founding edition, you know, we were yeah. so full of ourselves, yeah. but we did something the first edition you had to come over, over Christmas, yeah. and they, oh, over early early in the year when schools were just turning over and I had a wonderful friend who was a great photographer and we turned them loose on kindergarten and the first day of kindergarten kids walking with their mother and fathers and being nervous and being in class my friend Ron Gold was a great photographer we took a hundred pictures and we, we made sure somebody went with him and got the names of everybody and the first edition in the centerfold it was a tabloid but in the middle of the page maybe it was a 26 page or 28 page in the middle of the 14, 15 spread, two whole pages of kids going to starting um, kindergarten with the name of the kid and his mother there uh-huh. or his grandmother. Yeah, and uh, that was a way to start. I mean, we knew how to do it. This yeah, day. that was that, but, that I, works, but I yeah. woke up one day in the summer and I said, I don't want to do this. Yeah, and I told Billings I got to go. I couldn't do this. I didn't right. want to do. it I want to be in the world. And he got mad because I was the driving force. Yep. And uh, and I left. And he folded the paper. He was silly. He mm-hmm. could have kept it going. He just—he waited a couple of weeks, but he was mad at me after yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah. But I went. I went to California, played golf for a little while, tried to get a job in the L.A. Times, couldn't get one, and came back and by sheer luck, uh, by sheer luck, um, I, uh, I called up somebody at UPI, a guy named Gene Gillette. who was a lovely man. He was the regional editor. And I went to see him, and I don't know. My guess is somebody at City News. Just some good things to me because at that point my track record was I slumped out of law school. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, no, it's true. A newspaper that I quit. Yeah, right, it's true. I left the newspaper in the middle of it. Doesn't look uh, good. I've been fired by City News. The only guy that couldn't come back to City News. Yeah. And so what? What record did I have? But he, I went to see him, and he hired me to work as a as a number two guy in a
0: bureau in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to. I, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and I, I want to get in a couple more questions, if that's okay. Okay. Just yeah. So more. these are just a few more. And so one of them is about uh, when you. We're going to skip a little bit, and when you actually. Mentioned make it to D.C. and you start to work in the Pentagon and talk to people at the Pentagon. You have some very interesting and revealing things to say about the press corps at that time. I mean, I don't want to characterize it for you, but it just seems like they were in the pocket of the military. Well, you know what I did in that? Because I covered, I got to cover the Pentagon. What happened is I worked at UPI and did fine, and
1: AP Hard me in Chicago. Yeah. And in Chicago, I had a bowl. And they, the, the great thing, they the the, the the city editor there couldn't have been more different than I. He's a wonderful city editor. He was a very devout Catholic and a brilliant, brilliant guy. And um, he disagreed with me on things, but he, he really did appreciate um, my abilities. And so I eventually was given the job of going to work at 5 in the afternoon, 4 in the afternoon, doing the night shift. And I didn't have to sit at a desk. I did things like I got to Chicago for the AP and I was assigned to do radio write the radio wire you know the, uh, the way it works is, is the national wire the AP has for all the radio stations including the network and there's just, uh, about uh, twice a day for about t- eight, ten 10 minutes and a half hour and and the hour there would be a local split and I would then as a radio guy I would then I, I didn't have to I didn't have to type it like I did at UPI we had a typist I would then write copy for the radio, for five-minute splits, twice a day, right. you know, that's twice an hour, and that, that was a job. And I would sometimes change things and juice it up a little bit. And they eventually, uh, you know, I had a little, just a little flash, and they eventually put me on the desk where I was night reporting. We 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 could rewrite anything in the Chicago papers, and I'd like to get out, but it, sometimes I would just be, uh, I would do things like I wrote about this. Uh, The 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 the, the Lincoln Park Zoo had a a famous gorilla named Sinbad, and one night he got out, he got loose. Somebody left the door open, and instead of running through crazy, he went right into the uh, the dining hall, where he glommed down and (laughs) threw it, and and also had a beer, opened up some beer, Mm. and smashed some cans. And it made it it was a big spread in the paper, and so we then had to write a wire story about it, pick it up, and most guys would just write. uh, you know, we we could just we could make it AP. We didn't have to say Chicago. We that we had the copyrights. The, the Chicago Daily News and the Tribune, the four papers, subscribe to us, and they, we had the right to take their stories and rewrite them as AP stories. Not say the Sun Times said today. Just say, say you know, just use their material. And so I took it. and I would just I remember the Sinbad. I said uh, Sinbad, something like Sinbad the Gorilla, uh, uh, was nursing a hangover, just like any other guy <laughs> that had a night on the town. Yeah. Right, and so that story would go on the wire, and all of a sudden, I did stuff like that, uh, two or three pieces like that, and, and it was getting tremendous play. It would be off lead in the Herald Tribune in Chicago, and New York, rather. People would like those, you know, 500-word little feature on page one. And the the guy that ran the Night Wire sent a message, who's writing this stuff? And they said, well, a kid named She he said, put his name on the story. Yeah. And then he said, eventually, he said, let this guy go. And I my job was to write a story every day. Go to, and for about six, eight months, I did it. And finally, they promoted me to Washington. And I learned later that Carol Ehrman, the day city editor, who, you know, was on big, you know, he was much more conservative than I was. He's the one who pushed me to go to New York, to Washington. He wrote a letter of recommendation saying That's this could got me. it And so I was in Washington for a little while. I got sent to the Pentagon. But I had been reading about the war incessantly since 62 i find the New York Times every day reading Neil Sheehan, uh, David Halberstam. Sheehan was UPI, Mel Brown was AP, Halberstam was um, was New York Times. There were other guys at the New York Times, wonderful correspondents, who were there even before David, who were skeptical about the war. And then I began to read Bernard Foll. So when I get to the Pentagon, I'm already knowing. I also read the various Christian, um, not the Catholic Church, but Protestant Church, had put out pamphlets describing the perils of the war and collecting all the negative stories around the world because a lot of foreign press are reporting bad stuff that we weren't, right. about the killing and murder that was going on. I also read the Russell Tribune, which has some great stuff in it. So I, when I got to the Pentagon, I began to talk to officers, junior officers that come back. You know, the Pentagon's full of the bright. They go and do six months or a year in Vietnam, and they come back, and they be on some uh, aid to a senior general. But they go have lunch like anybody else, and I'd just sit down with a guy and say, I'm a kid reporter here from Washington, you know, the AP, what's it like? And let me tell you what I thought about the war. I got to know people, you know, and I had information. And so they were, you'd find smart guys and they eventually began to say how screwed up the war was and how murderous it was and how awful it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I I learned a lot. And I got in trouble in the Pentagon, and I what I couldn't believe how sublime the press corps was. Yeah,
0: this is the part I'm interested in right here, which I just what I did bizarre. in the book. What I did in the book
1: is Len Downey, who later who was a young reporter then for the Chicago uh, for the Washington Post, later became the managing executive editor. Len Downey and I met the first day I started it was the first day he started. So Len, 20 years later, writes a book about investigative reporting with a chapter on me, and he described. How he saw the Pentagon press office, which is the same way I did. Mm-hmm. So I used his description. They would just sit there, the way it worked in the Pentagon in those days. If you saw a general or an admiral for a story, you had to sign in. That meant if you had a story that was critical and some admiral helped you, you had to spend two or three days talking to six or seven other admirals and generals, the muddier. They were keeping track of us.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So the reporters didn't fight that system. They did, and every day you had a briefing. Some general would give a briefing and they report the briefing and write a story about it. And I couldn't believe what was going on. Yeah. So I just didn't do that.
2: Yeah.
1: I did my own thing. I got in a lot of trouble. McNamara wanted to fire me. They were all against me. But I began to report good stuff. And I write about how, of all people, Neil Sheehan came back from the war to cover the the, the, the Pentagon for the New York Times. And he and I became friends because he was a great reporter. He couldn't understand what was going on too. And twice I wrote stories that they about they were lying about bombing up North Vietnam. And yeah. twice I was going to get fired, but Neil Sheehan took my story and told the New York Times to run it on page one, and they did with an AP byline. That never happened. Yeah. Neil did that twice, and he kept me in, kept my job. So we stayed stayed friends all of our lives.
0: Yeah, I just found that it's pretty supine is a good word for it. I just found it kind of remarkable at the time. Well, how, yeah
1: I found it, was, but that's the way it was. it was. Then the war was, you know, nobody, nobody there was, it was there. The melee was there to yeah. be reported. So I learned two years later. I get the tip. I knew it was true. I knew there was something like this had to happen.
0: Yeah, I didn't know
1: how bad it was when I started. Right. Right, right.
0: Death, and there you go. Thank you very much for your time, so I really, really appreciate it. You've taken up an hour with us. That's just very generous of you. Well, uh, I, w- I was intrigued by your book. Thank so you. Bye-bye. By All right, take care. Bye-bye.